Will you join me in the prayer for illumination? Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come, and dispel the darkness of our minds with the light of God's truth. Come, Holy Spirit, come, and consume the coldness of our hearts with the warmth of God's love for us. Come, Holy Spirit, come, and once again, a stammering human tongue might become the earthen vessel of the Word of God. Come, Holy Spirit, come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today's first lesson comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 4, verses 13 through 21. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Listen to God's word for you. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Then, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Old Testament lesson this morning is the story of Jacob on the banks of the Jabbok River. We will read from the 32nd chapter of Genesis, verses 22 through 31. So listen now for the word of God to the church. The same night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. When I first saw the Jabbok River, I was traveling with a seminary group. We had spent the previous night in Amman, Jordan, and after breakfast, we loaded into the bus for the short trip up to Jerash, the city of the Gerasenes that is mentioned in the Gospels. And we had not been on the road for long when our bus crossed a small bridge and then turned left into a small dusty parking lot. And we filed out of the bus and we descended about 10 feet into the riverbed. The ground was sandy and littered with smooth stones. And in the center of the ravine was a shallow stream, less than 20 feet wide. If we had wanted to, we could easily have waded over to the other side. And it didn't take much imagination to picture a lonely and worried Jacob sitting alone by a fire in the darkness, gazing across to the land of his brother Esau and fretting about the awkward reunion that would soon take place. But as we stood there with the morning sun peeking through the trees, it seemed a peaceful, pleasant spot for some weary travelers. It was a Sunday morning, and our plan was to celebrate communion on the banks of this river where Jacob saw the face of God. It didn't take us long, however, to see beneath the peaceful surface. We began to perceive a faint smell wafting up from the slow-moving river. It's that kind of smell that comes from a creek that's fed by street drains. And we noticed soft drink cans littered around the ravine and some plastic bags hanging in the low-lying branches. To our left, the underside of the highway bridge that we had just crossed was marked with graffiti. And although we could not see it from where we stood, we knew that just across the river, just a few miles away, was a camp that had been in operation since 1968. It was started as an emergency shelter for thousands of Palestinian refugees from the Gaza Strip who had been bombed out of their homes in the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. That which was intended to be temporary became permanent. And today, 24,000 displaced people still call it home. The camp is overcrowded and impoverished. The children who live there attend woefully inadequate schools. Three out of every four shelters are structurally unsound and unsafe. There along the Jabbok, There was beauty and serenity, but between the rocks and down the stream and over the hill was shame and struggle. A pretty appropriate mix as we picture the man stopped to camp on the banks of this very river. Jacob, the shrewd and successful businessman, the fortunate husband of Rachel and Leah, the chosen one of God whose family was destined to grow and prosper, but also the man whose Hebrew name derived from the word heal, the one who overreaches and deceives the tricky and treacherous supplanter. 
Jacob is rich. He has done well, but he knows that much of his success has been built upon a foundation of self-serving lies and family deception. His scouts have reported back that a vengeful and murderous Esau has already prepared an army to greet Jacob. As a peace offering, Jacob has responded by sending a costly gift of sheep, goats, camels, and bulls across the river. And in a desperate act of defense, he has divided his family into two groups, hoping that if one is attacked and killed, at least the other might survive. He sends both groups across the river, but he remains back. Like his family, he is a man divided, paralyzed by doubt, guilt, and fear. There, beside the Jabbok, Jacob experiences a crisis of conscience and will, what many disciples have called a dark night of the soul. As is often the case with the most wonderful and enduring biblical stories, what happens next seems to be both metaphorical and literal. As Jacob wrestles with his conscience, wrestles with his guilt, wrestles with his past and with his future, Jacob finds himself engaged in a literal wrestling match with an unknown, unnamed stranger. The Hebrew text tells tells us only that it is a man. But who is he? Is he mortal, symbolizing our struggles with family, friends, and foes? Is he an angel, a messenger sent to teach Jacob a heavenly lesson? Or could this mysterious stranger actually be the presence of God? We are left to imagine all of these possibilities, something that a confused but determined Jacob surely did himself on the banks of this great and little river. I wonder whether the first thought that went through Jacob's mind as soon as that strange guy laid hands on him was that it must be Esau. I didn't grow up with brothers But I have heard from those who did that brothers wrestle. They engage in physical struggles for dominance, and in those struggles, physical strength and power almost always prevail. Younger brothers were left to long for the day when they would finally be big enough to give their older brothers a run for their money. And Jacob was always smaller, so he had to use his wits. But in a purely physical contest, Jacob would surely lose. But not this time. This contest was different, strangely balanced, evenly matched, and something more than bragging rights seemed to be at stake. The mysterious nature of the scene is underscored by the Hebrew word that is translated here as to wrestle. That verb and word is used only twice in the whole Bible, and both occur in this passage in back-to-back sentences. Some think the word has Assyrian roots, but no one really knows. 
Through the ages, scholars have agreed that it means to grapple, to engage, to get dusty. I think the best translation may actually be to get into it, as in to get into what's really bothering us, to get into the conversation that we always avoid, to finally address that awful thing that stands between two people or between a person and him or herself, or between a person and God. There on the banks of the river, Jacob got into it, the thing that he feared the most. I think that's a helpful place for us to enter into the story. There is a lot of anxiety out there in the world right now. People were already worried about a great many things. And this pandemic has not only given us more to worry about, it has also given us a lot of time and space to think about all kinds of things. Most of us, however, don't really want to do that. We don't really want to get into it. So we do other things. Maybe we blame other people projecting our pain and our self-doubt onto someone else. Perhaps we self-medicate to numb the pain. A lot of us are zoning out with Netflix binges. But any doctor will tell you that anxiety does not just dissolve and go away. Anxiety goes somewhere. So these avoidance strategies never really work in the end. Sooner or later, if we want to move ahead into a more promising place, we are going to have to get into it. We are going to have to wrestle with our personal demons, wrestle with the people who seem like they are out to get us, wrestle with our guilt, wrestle with our shame, wrestle with our pain, and even wrestle with God who I hate to break it to you, but already knows all of that stuff. One of the truths that this story pushes us to confront is that a key attribute of a true disciple is a willingness to wrestle with oneself, to be honest with ourselves, not just about what other people have done, but about what we have done and what we are still doing, how we have hurt others, how we have fallen short of God's hopes for us, and how we might still be contributing to injustices, both close to home and on the other side of the world, through blindness, greed, anger, or indifference. The story of Jacob at Peniel reminds us that if we are willing to wrestle with these things, if we are willing to get into whatever it is that we need to get into, if we are able to hold on and grit it out, then the daylight will surely come and we will be blessed in a new way and the door to forgiveness, restoration, and life will be open to us. Standing in the light of a new day as our group gathered into a loose circle 
on the rocky bank of the Jabbok River, this kind of struggle felt eerily real for us. We were a fairly diverse group, divinity students, Christian educators, experienced pastors, elders, lay people, professors. Some of us were Americans who had never known real want or never really lived in actual danger. Others were Palestinians who had never known a day of security or peace. But everyone in that circle was wrestling with something. We were all God's good creations, but we all had some refuse littering our spirits. Even the strong supporting parts of us were marked with some crude graffiti. And we were all keenly aware that even though other people had built that camp across the hill, the shameful reality of its continued presence spread a pall of guilt that we all somehow shared. Somehow, someday, we were going to have to get into all of it. But for that moment, we did what a worried Jacob had done so many years ago. We bowed our heads and we prayed a prayer like Jacob's. O God of our father Abraham and God of our father Isaac, we know that we are not worthy of even the least of the steadfast love and faithfulness that you have given us. Yet you have still blessed us in so many ways. Deliver us, please from the misdeeds of our past and from the threats that are closing in upon us, for we are afraid. Remember your promise, O Lord, that you will surely do us good and that your faithful people will grow and prosper until they are too many to count, until their number is greater than the sand of the sea. And then one of us pulled out a glass that had been borrowed from our hotel in Amman. Someone else drew from her bag two fresh rolls saved from the breakfast buffet. One of my classmates opened a small bottle of red wine that she had surreptitiously purchased at a roadside gas station. And there, as the cloudy waters of the Jabbok gurgled by, we passed the broken body of the one bruised for our transgressions, and we passed the cup of the one who spilled his blood in the name of love. We grabbed the hands of the disciples to our left and to our right, and we held on for dear life, praying for some kind of divine blessing that could make all of this right, that could make all of us right, that could make all things right. And then we turned and walked quietly up and out of the ravine, back up to our bus. And we got into it. Our spirits determined, but limping just a bit, ready to make our way even further west even closer to the end of our journey in the land of God's promise. In the name of the Father, 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.